Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, your weekly dose of civil rights and criminal injustice system news, we'll be talking about the exoneration of Francis Choi in Massachusetts. Prosecutors intend to use the racist past of the men accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia and the strange case of the conspiracy to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. In segment two, as promised, we'll be exploring the movement to defund the police and what that means for criminal injustice system reform. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And look to tlobj.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week, Francis Choi, who spent 17 years in prison after being accused of killing her parents in a house fire, was exonerated because of some racist emails exchanged by the prosecutors in her case. Yeah, this is such an interesting case. And again, we keep talking about cases that happen in Massachusetts, but I'm going to let you remind us of what happened in this case. So Francis Choi was convicted of arson murder in 2003 in Massachusetts on her third time going to trial. The first two ended up in, mis in mistrials, and uh, she was ultimately sentenced to life in prison when she was 17 years old. Now, Francis Choi is Asian American. Ms. Choi was tried with her cousin, Kenneth, and he was acquitted in 2008 and then testified against her with immunity from the prosecutors during her second trial. Now, during her third trial, Kenneth had fled to Hong Kong and was unavailable to testify. So prosecutors role-played his testimony to the jury, and that ultimately ended in Ms. Choi's conviction. Now, this is a striking example of how a trial with a co-defendant can go drastically awry. And in many cases, a coordinated strategy for the investigation and trial presentation is the best case scenario for everyone involved. Additionally, Erica, this is a travesty and, and a gross miscarriage of the application of the rules of evidence. Now, in this case, the prosecutors were allowed to read prior testimony and put their own inflection, reaction, facial expression into the testimony of that witness uh, because, that, because he was unavailable at the retrial. Now, this is grossly unfair and is absolutely a violation of Ms. Choi's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. Yeah, wow, that's amazing that they could do that. I... I am astounded. Now, how was it that they collected Francis Choi's evidence to show the prosecution that um, they, they were influenced by racism against Asians? So this is a classic example of having the right attorney on the case and having an attorney that believes in you on your case. Her attorneys have been conducting decades of investigation ever since she went to prison doing public records requests, subpoenas, and litigating the disclosure of information. Ms. Choi was represented by the Boston College Innocence Project, which explains how she had the resources to wage this fight. Um, 
these fights, these post-conviction battles are expensive and resource intensive and often out of the reach of many wrongfully convicted defendants. The DA's office was ultimately forced to hand over their emails, which showed racist jokes, comments, and even defamatory statements about Ms. Choi's sexuality. The DA was forced to admit the two trial prosecutors were biased against Asians, and their emails proved that. So what significance does this have against wrongful conviction appeals? So Ms. Choi was released from custody in April of this year after a judge stayed her sentence. And in September, her, her conviction was completely vacated. She is now a free woman and free to pursue civil claims against the state of Massachusetts. Now, it's important to note that this case also involved other issues, including misleading forensic evidence and the ineffective assistance of trial counsel. But this may be the first case where a conviction was overturned due to the racism of prosecutors involved in the case specifically, rather than their conduct at trial. And it establishes a precedent for attorneys in a post-conviction scenario to access prosecutor communications and establish these claims of prejudice. Well, this is amazing news for Ms. Chow and it's an incredible step forward in fighting the criminal injustice system. Absolutely. And in Georgia, the criminal justice system continues to grind its gears on the individuals charged with murdering Ahmad Arbery. Now, the prosecution has now made motions to the trial court seeking the admission of racist social media posts and text messages to be submitted as evidence against the three individuals charged with murdering Arbery. So aren't Facebook posts covered by the First Amendment? Well, they absolutely are. The First Amendment provides us freedom of speech without the interference of the government, but it doesn't present, prevent what you put online to be used against you later. Remember the Miranda warnings, anything you say can and will be used against you in court. Now, in this case, the government isn't prohibiting these defendants from making racist comments or putting their offensive thoughts on Facebook. It's using these expressions against them to prove a question that is at issue in their trial, their motive to murder Ahmad Arbery. Now, motive isn't an element of murder, and the state doesn't have to prove it, but it's permitted to use motive under Rule 404B of the Rules of Evidence. Now, this is a tool that prosecutors frequently abuse and use to try and convince jurors that a defendant is just a bad person. They can submit evidence of individuals' prior bad acts in order to prove motive, absence of mistake, knowledge, opportunity, preparation, or plan. And in this case, they're using these uh, prior racist posts and the racist comments in their text message threads to prove that this murder was, or that this killing was in fact murder because it was racially motivated. Wow, that is unbelievable. How could they possibly use evidence as someone did something bad in the past or had a bad character? You know, maybe they kicked cats or they, I don't know I, what it could be, but um, how is this possible? So typically that evidence is excluded from trial. Most people believe 
once a thief, always a thief, right? And the rules of evidence address that because that's not a fair way to judge whether somebody committed this offense on this occasion, which is what jurors are charged with deciding. But in certain circumstances, there are an exception to that rule for motive, absence of mistake, opportunity, plan, preparation, modus operandi, anything but trying to demonstrate a propensity to engage in the behavior, the quote unquote bad acts that are being offered for admission. So in this case, if these individuals were charged with making racist comments, these, these text messages would be absolutely excluded at trial, but they're charged with murder. And what the prosecution is saying is they committed this murder because the individual was of another race, in this case, an African-American. This is a prime example of why a skilled trial lawyer is critical in high profile controversial cases and really any case that's going to go to trial. A mastery of the rules of evidence is critical to presenting an effective defense. Time and time again, I have clients come to me requesting that I present evidence of their character at trial to which I then ask, well, is your character witness aware of the current charges against you? Is your character witness aware of your prior criminal history, if that's applicable? Is your character witness aware of other bad behavior that may not be criminal that other witnesses are going to be able to testify to? And if the answer to all of those questions isn't in my client's favor, then we don't want to present the character evidence because it exposes all of that information to the jury. Better to be silent on the issue of character than open up the can of worms that can be all of the bad things that you've done in the past. Well, I mean, that is exactly why people should call you if they have an issue, because honestly, like that kind of strategy, I think anyone that didn't know what they were doing might think, oh, great, you can have five people come up here and say you're an amazing person, and then the opposition is going to get up and just totally trash that line of questioning. And you'll be in a lot of trouble later um, as far as you know, the outcome of the case. That's absolutely correct, Erica. And the media is now discussing this information. So the prosecutors have used a classic prosecutorial tool, which is to throw the information out into the court of public opinion. And potential jurors are now going to be aware of these racist posts and text messages. And it's going to be an additional issue for the defense to have to prepare for when this case goes to trial. Yeah, why pile on extra work when it's already gonna be an uphill battle? Exactly. So it just goes to show the, the racist things that you post online can come back to bite you in the future. And speaking of people who post racist things online, six people were arrested and charged in a federal conspiracy to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Did you hear about this story, Erica? Yeah, what an incredible story it is. I am shocked that well, I guess I'm not shocked with the way things are going right now in this country, but it, it, it's pretty amazing that somebody would have this plot that seems like it's plucked right out of a Mission Impossible movie. 
I would say a Tuesday night FX show. Okay, touche. How will the use of government informants affect the prosecution? Whenever the government uses informants to, as the foundation of their case, the defense attorney needs to explore whether the accused was entrapped or otherwise enticed into committing the offense by the government agents. Now, if you get online and you read the complaint, uh, the, the, the affidavit in support of probable cause, for the warrants to arrest the individuals in this case, what you find is time and time again, the affidavit relies on the statements and information gathered by the confidential informants. Now, these individuals may have been predisposed to engaging in militia-like activities, training to be um, you know, freedom fighters or uh, whatever they, you know, however they view themselves, but did they on their own come up with this idea to kidnap the governor, Gretchen Whitmer? And the question is, did the government entice them to commit this offense? You know, consider if the possession of apples is a crime. And then the question is, did the government bring the accused to the market and give them money to buy apples? Or did the government merely set up a stand selling apples that the accused can choose to possess them from? I mean, it's a great analogy, and I, I don't think I've ever told you this before, Brian, in our very long time of, of talking and working together, uh, but when I was a fresh, no, a sophomore in college, uh, my boyfriend at the time, who I think was 19, uh, who I obviously didn't know well enough, ended up on the five o'clock news because he had taken uh, a course at Northeastern about, um, you know, about crime and about hostile situations. He really wanted to be the FBI. So he ended up uh, wanting to become a vigilante. So he had all these homemade shell catchers on guns and throwing stars, just really odd, like array of things. And one day somebody thought that they, he and his friend were suspicious because they, all they do is sit around and plan these, you know, to help, I guess, um, abduct crooked judges and cops and mobsters and question them. And I don't, it was just this crazy, he obviously lived in a, a fantasy land, but they did throw him in jail for a while. And he got off because uh, they didn't use the proper procedures when searching his car. Dollar store punisher. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was really eye-opening let's just say. So this is like on a much larger scale, but I, I figured it would be an interesting story for you to hear that I have some personal experience uh, in this area. Well, I'm glad you were able to get out of that situation, Erica. It sounds like it was a really dangerous relationship for everyone. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, so that's the question is, do, you, the, the question is, do you people get in trouble for planning, but not carrying out a crime. Well, yeah, absolutely. This is the difference between an attempt and uh, an accomplished or completed crime. Now, under most state laws, a criminal attempt is a charge that is a degree lower than the actual accomplished crime. 
you know, for instance, importuning, uh, soliciting uh, sexual activity of a minor through telecommunications is a felony of the third degree. Uh, but the attempt to solicit that, in, that behavior is a felony of the fourth degree. Now, under the federal penal code, many charges include attempt as a part of the charge. So there's no distinction between the attempt to commit the crime and accomplishing the crime itself. So does charging someone with this crime mean that they're charging somebody for thinking about a crime? No. The First Amendment protects people's political speech and it protects their ideas. This case involves much more than speech. Indeed, any charged conspiracy should. Now, the accused in this case are alleged to have had multiple meetings where they had a, a detailed plan to kidnap the governor. They had plans to escape from their kidnapping. Uh, they had plans to blow a bridge. They went to the additional step of finding out how much the explosives would cost and set up a purchase of explosives, allegedly to, um, to blow up a bridge leading out to the governor's uh, vacation or summer home. Um, they engaged in secret meetings and collected cell phones prior to the meeting. They cased locations that they planned to attack, um, including timing out the law enforcement response to the governor's home. Um, so all of these actions are affirmative steps to actually carrying out the plan. There's absolutely nothing illegal about sitting around in your basement and talking about how great it would be to overthrow the government. But as soon as you pick up a gun and walk up and start walking up your stairs to do so, you have now committed a major federal crime. You know, there's no, there's no law against sitting in a bar and talking about how great it would be to over, overthrow the country. But as soon as you pay somebody to buy that first firearm in order to take us in order to actually do it, you've committed a very serious crime. So these individuals must be very cautious and very cognizant of the serious federal offenses that they can be accused of committing. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I guess it's the difference between thinking about it and really showing your true intention to complete the act. Absolutely. That is absolutely it. So Erica, now that we've covered all of the civil rights and criminal injustice system news that is coming up this week, let's move on to our featured topic of defunding the police and what that means for criminal justice reform. Now, the defund the police movement is a policy goal that has arisen from the protest movements against police brutality, racism, and in response to the killings of hundreds of unarmed black people. Let's explore what defunding the police entails beyond its position as a political buzzword. What would that policy look like in the greater effort of criminal justice reform. So yeah, let's talk about this because so many people are looking at defunding the police as something really negative for the police. And as I understand it, and from the past discussions we've had, 
it's really about making sure that we are focusing on de-escalating situations as they come up. So we will hire more psychiatrists and, and other types of medical professionals that can actually be on site while a heated situation is going on to make sure that it doesn't blow up into national news where somebody dies unnecessarily. That's exactly right, Erica. Remember, police have long been individuals that stand up in the community to protect and serve. And that has always been a mantra on police badges for hundreds of years. But what they have become is a paramilitary organization that is designed to arrest and prosecute individuals. And that may be necessary in some circumstances. If there are widespread active criminal gangs that are bringing exceptional uh, amounts of crime and unrest to a city, then there needs to be a force that can meet those organized criminal elements. But for the man that's experiencing a mental health crisis or the woman who is having trouble parenting her children, a police response that includes a SWAT truck and 15 officers pouring out and kicking in their door is not a proportional response and actually leads to additional and more severe social crises. Defunding the police or divestment is the more accurate term is simply reallocating assets from police funding of things like those SWAT vehicles fully automatic weapons and rocket launchers to alternative response services such as mental health advocates, suicide prevention hotlines, and individuals who can limit the role and responsibility of police officers to respond to social crises. State and local governments spend upwards of $100 billion a year on policing. And that does not include billions more in federal grants and resources. Since the 1980s, spending on law enforcement and criminal justice has dramatically outpaced that in community services like housing, education, mental health, and violence prevention programs. All of the institutions that are necessary to build stable, safe, and healthy communities. This has led to a one response for all approach. Submit to the legal authority, and later, after you've been convicted, after you've been branded a criminal, after your housing, your employment, your educational opportunities have been cut off from you, then we might address your alcoholism. Then we might address your mental health issue. Then we might address your drug addiction. Or more likely, we'll continue to process you through the system while collecting your fines and costs. This is how we end up with 20% of our inmates in local jails and 15% of our inmates in state and federal prisons who have mental health conditions because there is no emergency response available for a mental health crisis other than to arrest and incarcerate these individuals. And in that regard, defunding the police is more about refunding critical programs and services like social workers, mental health counselors, drug treatment facilities, and crisis interventionists. 
Wow. I mean, honestly, the way that you're describing this, it makes it sound like they're putting the cart before the horse. They're not curing all of these other social ailments. They are just arresting people. <laughs> so I, I can see what you're talking about here when you can refund some of these social programs. So you can really decrease these arrests and people being thrown in jail without getting any help. And then, then later on they get help and then it's too late. Their reputation is tarnished and they themselves have probably lost all hope because they were put in that position because of how we set up society as it was. So how will this help the black Americans in the future? Um, I'm going to let you re-ask that question. Yeah, I will. But I want to I say something real quick. So Erica, you're exactly right. The number of times that I've represented an individual who's accused of burglarizing their own parents' house. And what their parents think is, well, we'll call the police on them and they'll get the help they need. But what ends up happening is the prosecutor says, well, this is a serious crime. And so we're going to send you to prison for it. During the, the peak of the opioid crisis, time and time again, I would see individuals who had committed property crimes be sent to prison. And they committed those property crimes for the sole purpose of getting their next fix. They never had any intention of committing violence. They never had any intention of harming anybody, but they had one of the most difficult addictions to get over that humanity has ever seen. And without the availability of drug rehab facilities, proper clinics, the assistance to get back on their feet long enough to have stable housing, secure a job and, and restart their lives, they never stood a chance. And the parents find themselves coming to sentencing hearings thinking, I thought I was doing what was best for my child. And what they ended up doing was putting their child in prison. That's a really sad situation. So can you explain how some of these changes will change policing when it comes to Black Americans in the future, if we're able to get these changes done? A recent study found that one in 1,000 Black men can be expected to be killed by the police right now. Policing metrics are currently set up to encourage the harassment of individuals in poverty for minor crimes and crimes of poverty. And Black Americans live in those environments at a higher ratio than white Americans. Now, this harkens back to law enforcement's extensive history as the enforcers of slavery and the catchers of runaway slaves. And then the later enforcement of Jim Crow laws and the authorities that stood by while white residents murdered Blacks across the South or as the classic example, Erica, the, the massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In addition to divesting from police and reinvesting those savings in non-punitive programs that would benefit public safety and health, de defunding the police would end enforcement of 
minor offenses at the street level that drive one-on-one -on -one harassment and policies such as New York's abandoned and failed stop and frisk policy. It would end police presence in schools, which exacerbates racial inequalities and makes an us versus them mentality the baseline for many student-teacher relationships. It would develop a mobile crisis intervention service program peer crisis intervention services, and crisis hot and warm lines to support behavioral and mental health crises. And it would ban pretextual stops and consent searches that act as common tools of racial profiling and the enforcement of the tag and put them into probation mentality of the government's desire to keep a tab on individuals in the minority communities. This is really about rethinking the role of police in society, not just reducing the harmful effects of policing. Again, getting police back to the mentality of protecting and serving the individuals of their community, rather than looking at everybody as an enemy combatant in a war zone. I mean, that all sounds amazing. It sounds like it's going to help level the playing field a bit if we can get it to happen. So we're talking about criminal justice reform and I'm wondering what impact defunding the police might have on the criminal justice reform. Defunding the police would have a ripple effect across the criminal injustice system because it would strike at the fundamental pillars of institutional racism within the system. Eliminating pretextual stops, eliminating street level targeting, eliminating the law enforcement prerogative to treat community members as these enemy combatants who need to be policed using tanks and SWAT gear and instead refocusing them on where they are needed the most. Violent crimes, major trafficking, white collar corruption, and sexual assault offenses. These are the sorts of crimes that we need a security force to protect us from. We do not need a security force to protect us from a shoplifter. We do not need a security force to protect us from a homeless man selling loose cigarettes on the street corner. We do not need a security force to protect us from prostitutes in the streets. We need community action to address these minor level crimes. It would also relieve law enforcement of the pressures of testifying because metrics and reward systems that have shaped American policing for decades would be fundamentally altered with a new focus on responding to serious crimes not policing the general public. The reforms would result in far less incarceration of minorities, indigenous people, and people of color, because law enforcement tools used to lock these folks up would be eliminated. Hundreds of lives of all ethnicities and primarily in the lower socioeconomic area will be saved by having training crisis, trained crisis counselors responding to mental health emergencies instead of armed police officers. We've covered dozens of instances of deaths of people who are in mental health crisis on this show alone. And we represent multiple individuals who in, in a mental health crisis ended up being shot by police because of a trigger happy cop 
who thought the only way that he can keep himself safe is by treating everybody in the community as an enemy combatant in a war zone. These individuals would now have a fighting chance of survival and receiving the mental health treatment that they need instead of being at best locked up in jail and at worst shot in their own homes. Well, I mean, it sounds like with any company, when things are going badly, whether it's monetarily or whether you've just got a lot of unrest amongst your employees and punishments are happening here. I mean, it sounds like when you are making changes and cutting the fat and adding new programs to try to improve the performance of your company, that, I mean, these are the kinds of actions that are taken. Change is never easy. And sometimes the uncomfortable path is the only path forward. And in this case, America needs drastic change. The, the juxtaposition of police versus everyone must change. It has to be a fundamental alteration of the mentality of police in America. And without that, we will never have the freedom that this country was founded upon. Well, I think that that was beautifully put and I'm glad that you are here putting a microscope on all of the terrible situations that are happening right now and the changes that need to be made. If you find yourself in a bad situation, uh, definitely give the law offices of Brian Jones a call because as you can tell from these interviews, they are amazing with strategies, staying on top of everything that's happening currently and making sure that they get the best outcome for their clients. And with that, I mean, it, it's just amazing to hear you week after week talk about the criminal injustice system and the changes that need to be made but in the meantime, the strategy is to make sure that your clients are treated fairly. Well, thank you for saying that, Erica, and thank you for joining me today. And thank you everybody else for watching or listening to our show this week. To become more informed about what defunding the police really means, police and government accountability and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of brianjones.com or find us on facebook.com slash central ohio criminal defense or on instagram tiktok and twitter at t-l-o-b-j you can find us using our informative hashtags no walk no talk and no blow next week we'll be back with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a discussion of the rise in domestic violence incidents and death in the state of Ohio during the pandemic. Erica, my grandfather always said when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends, I add, if you do, and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.